0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. Wildfires torching the Hawaii Island of Maui, burning down homes and wiping out communities. At least six people have been killed. We hear from one local resident who lost her home. A search warrant for former President Trump's Twitter account granted to special counsel Jack Smith. And the social media platform fined for a delay in compliance. New Biden family bank memos confirming over $20 million in foreign cash and dinners attended by then-Vice President Joe Biden. Americans are banned from investments that could aid the Chinese military. What the Biden administration announces today and which sectors are placed under scrutiny. And an American nurse and her daughter freed after being kidnapped in Haiti. Find out what officials have to say about the fortunate turn of events. <music> An apocalyptic scene in Hawaii as deadly wildfires rage across Hawaii's Big Island in Maui, destroying buildings and forcing evacuations and rescues. Maui County officials say at least six people have died in the fires there. Here's the voice of a Maui resident whose house got burned by the fire.
1: I know for a fact people didn't get out. I know I, when we were pulling away, there, there's a, quite a few homeless people um, in, in the area and people who are just not able, You don't have access to, to vehicles. When the fire started, I, I heard the first explosions of the gas stations exploding, and then I saw the black smoke a couple, like a couple streets away, and within half an hour, we
0: were out the door. The Coast Guard has rescued at least 12 people who jumped into the ocean to escape the smoke and flames. Several hospitals are overwhelmed with patients suffering burns and smoke inhalation. Cell service, including 911, is down across Maui, making evacuations and rescues even more challenging. About 14,000 homes and businesses in Maui have lost power. Hundreds of families have already lost their homes in the town of Lahaina. Strong winds from a passing hurricane are driving the fires. Hawaii has declared a state of emergency, and the White House says it's in contact. Tourists are also being urged to stay away from Maui due to the dangerous conditions. And more details surfaced on the indictment of former President Trump. Special counsel Jack Smith obtained a search warrant for Trump's Twitter account back in January. That's according to court documents released today. The warrant required Twitter, now called X, to supply Smith with certain information about Trump's account. A federal appeals court judge ended up holding the company in contempt and imposing a $350,000 fine for failing to comply with the order by the deadline. The DOJ also obtained a non-disclosure order prohibiting Twitter from releasing information about the case. Smith's office argued that disclosing the search warrant to Trump would put the investigation at risk, suggesting it could give him the opportunity to destroy evidence. The Twitter warrant is part of Smith's investigation into the former president's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Bank records released today show more than $20 million paid to the Bidens, the foreign cash flowing from oligarchs in Ukraine, Russia and Kazakhstan. NTD's congressional correspondent Melina Wisecup reports.
2: So this third memo by the Oversight Committee is the result of subpoenaing six banks and it's focused on payments made to Hunter Biden by wealthy foreigners. Now for example one foreigner that's mentioned here is a Russian Billionaire by the name of Yelena Bacharima. He paid $3.5 million to Hunter Biden and his business partner, Devin Archer, through a company known as Rosemont Seneca. The key thing here that the Oversight Committee notes is the timing of this payment, as well as others made by oligarchs in Ukraine and Kazakhstan, for example. These payments happened in the February of 2014 and the spring of 2014, then just months later, then Vice President Biden sat down and joined a dinner with Hunter Biden and these same business partners that he was engaging with, not only one dinner, but two dinners. To be clear, President Biden has not been directly linked to any of those payments, but there is an account that received money that's linked to an unidentified Biden. Now, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Colmer, I recently asked him if the lacking of this hard evidence would impact their investigation, he said that witness testimony could fill those gaps. See, that would need to be a communications, a proof of communications that you would need to look at, right? And if there's... More
3: people that were in the room, people that know exactly what,
2: In other news, there are more updates about a man named Eric Schwerin. So he was the president of Rosemont Seneca. Fox recently did an analysis from visitor logs at the White House, revealing that Schwerin visited the White House under Obama's presidency more than 36 times. He also met directly with President Biden one of those times. And he also visited then-Vice President Biden's home personally at least 15 times. So what's next for Comer's investigation? More digging. He says he'll continue to follow the money, continue to request more witness testimony to ultimately discover whether or not our national security has been compromised. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weisskop, NTD News.
0: An assassination threat against the president. This morning, a Utah man was shot and killed during an FBI raid after he allegedly made threats against President Biden and other officials. This came just as the president was gearing up for a fundraising event in Park City. The suspect was identified as 75-year-old Craig Robertson. He was shot at around 6.15 a.m. local time in Provo, Utah. And according to the FBI, Robertson had a history of making threatening posts online, suggesting he would kill the president and several other politicians. And the latest threat came on Monday when he said he was preparing to assassinate Biden when he arrived in Utah. Robertson was facing three charges, including interstate threats, threats against the president, and influencing, impeding, and retaliating against federal law enforcement officers by threat. The White House was briefed on the matter, and the Secret Service referred questions to the FBI. And The Biden administration today announcing new bans on U.S. investments that could help the Chinese military. It comes amid mounting bipartisan concern over national security threats posed by the communist regime. NTD's Iris Tau has more from the White House.
4: President Biden on Wednesday signed an executive order to ban certain U.S. investments in Chinese artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and semiconductors. Biden writes in the executive order that such sensitive technologies can be used for the military, intelligence, and surveillance by countries of concern, which constitutes, quote, an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. Biden asks that certain U.S. investments risk exacerbating this threat, and he thereby declares a national emergency to deal with this threat. The latest move comes amid growing bipartisan concerns over threats from the Chinese Communist regime. The Biden administration last year restricted exports of advanced chips to China, and he stressed today.
5: America invented these chips. You all know, semiconductors are those little small computer chips about the size of an fingertip that affect nearly everything in our lives, from cell phones, automobiles, refrigerators, to the most sophisticated weapon
6: system. Without access to those computer chips, uh, China's military is at a disadvantage, its economy is at a disadvantage, its manufacturing sector is at a disadvantage. All, you know, cars have hundreds of computer chips in them. The new
4: restrictions are expected to go into effect next year. Reporting from White House, Iris Howe and NTD News.
0: An American nurse and her daughter have been released after being kidnapped in Haiti. The State Department today praised the release.
7: I will say that we welcome the reports of their release. We have no greater priority, of course, than the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas. Uh, We express our deepest appreciation to our Haitian and U.S. interagency partners for their assistance in facilitating for their their safe release and, out of respect for their privacy, we'll let the individuals speak for themselves when they feel ready.
0: American nurse Alex Dorsenville and her daughter were kidnapped in the capital port of Prince on July 27th, El Roy, Haiti. The organization Dorsonville works for put out a statement announcing their release and expressing, quote, immense joy at the development. Haitian gangs frequently carry out kidnapping for profit operations targeting local communities for ransom payments. And the oldest sitting member in the U.S. Senate has suffered another health scare. California Senator Dianne Feinstein was once again hospitalized on Tuesday following a minor fall at home. Feinstein's spokesman said that she was in the hospital very briefly just to get it checked out. All of her scans came out clear and she eventually returned home. The Democratic Senator was also hospitalized earlier this year by a shingles diagnosis that kept her out of her seat for months. Feinstein's absence from the Senate prompted calls of resignation from her colleagues on both sides. Last week, the 90-year-old lawmaker handed power of attorney to her daughter, Catherine, granting her the authority to act on her mother's behalf. Coming up, a Florida state attorney speaks out after Governor Ron DeSantis suspends her for dereliction of duty. She says it's a move to boost his falling presidential campaign. And New York City's mayor revealing how many billion dollars the city is expected to spend on immigration, asking the federal government for financial aid. This comes amid an ongoing immigration crisis in America's largest city. We'll have more for you after the break. Earlier today, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended the second Florida state attorney in a year. The attorney pushing back and calling the suspension a political hit job.
8: NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended his second Democratic state prosecutor in a year. On Wednesday morning, he announced the suspension of Orange Osceola County State Attorney Monique Worrell. DeSantis said he's removing her from office for not following the laws of Florida and what he called a pattern of avoiding mandatory minimum sentences on several different offenses. The governor cited cases involving gun crimes, drug trafficking, and child pornography.
3: Prosecutors have a duty to faithfully enforce the law. One's
6: political agenda cannot trump this solemn duty.
8: He said Worrell's office had a practice of allowing juvenile offenders to avoid serious charges or incarceration and noted the shooting over the weekend of two Orlando police officers by a 28-year-old repeat offender. The offender had been arrested in March for sexual battery on a minor while he was on probation for another offense. He was released again. Worrell called her suspension a political hit job. During a press conference this morning, Worrell said there's another reason why the governor suspended her.
4: This is simply a smokescreen for Ron DeSantis' failing and disastrous presidential campaign. He needed to get back in the media in some positive way that would be red meat for his base.
8: Worrell believes the suspension came in response to her stance on police accountability, saying her prosecution of a former Orlando police officer angered Florida police. She has defended her record despite high profile crimes under her watch and vowed that the suspension would not stop her from running for re-election. DeSantis said prosecutors do have some discretion to decide which cases to bring, but he said Worrell abused that discretion, which effectively nullified certain Florida laws. The governor appointed Orange County Judge Andrew Bain to take over as state attorney for the 9th Judicial Circuit. DeSantis appointed him to the bench in 2020. Step-
0: Thanks, Arlene. And next, New York City's mayor today changing his approach to tackling the immigration crisis, laying out exactly how many billion dollars the city will have to spend if things don't change. The goal, financial aid from the federal government. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more.
4: But we are past our breaking point.
9: New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Wednesday again calling for financial aid from the federal government. That's to assist the sanctuary city with the ongoing immigration crisis. Adams laid out how much the city is expected to spend on immigration over the next three years. More than $12 billion. Adams is asking both state and federal government for more funding and space to house immigrants. He recently said the city is currently considering housing people in 10 cities in Central Park, among other locations. Adams on Wednesday also challenged the city's right to shelter law. The Big Apple has to provide beds and care to anyone in need because of the law.
7: That is just not sustainable, it's not realistic. And so because of that, you're finding people come from all over the globe.
9: The city is reportedly spending almost $10 million on illegal immigrants every day. And the number of people seeking shelter is expected to double within the next 10 months. Meanwhile, at a border town down in Arizona, House Republicans held a field hearing on immigration on Tuesday. A local rancher described the impact the influx of people has, saying some are cutting his fences. I spend 50% of my time
10: fixing fences, broken water lines and getting cattle off the highway.
9: And a local county sheriff talked about the dangers imposed by cartels. Border-related crime is at an all-time high. Death, murder, investigations, agents, troopers, deputies, and others are addressing dangerous scenarios, criminals as a direct result of an open border exploited by these criminal cartels for violence, fear, and greed. The sheriff is calling on the federal government to issue an action plan which prioritizes the southern border. Ariane Pastar, NTD News.
0: And in business and financial news, S&P Global has dropped the ESG scale it launched in 2021 to score publicly rated companies. S&P, which is one of the world's largest raters of corporate debt, said the decision would take effect immediately. For more on this, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an ESG expert.
11: And now I'm happy to bring in Will Hill, the executive director at Consumers Research. So Will. S&P, five, uh, S&P Global will no longer publish ESG scores along with its credit ratings. Um, can we come to the conclusion that the ESG scoring system has not worked in the past couple of years and that's why S&P is dropping it?
3: That, that's a great question. Ba- basically, that's what a- S&P admitted to is that the scores themselves really weren't that useful for anyone who's, who's tried to use them. And we're really seeing a retreat across the entire ESG industrial complex as it becomes more and more clear that the, these, you know, scoring systems don't don't really work as advertised.
11: And I want to point out some some of its flaws, and maybe you can help me with that. But I think one of them is that the ESG rating is is very vague. It's it's applying unmeasurable factors on companies. You know, for example, like if you get a one out of five score, I mean, what does that even mean?
3: Right. Exactly. And, and there really is no um, clear way to determine these esg scores everyone that does them does them slightly differently and it really comes down to extremely subjective measures it comes down to the the opinion of the personnel that happen to work at these companies you know when you look at things like the s for example it's supposedly about the the company's you know stands on social issues you know, that's an eye of the beholder. Somebody who's, you know, far left will see things one way. Someone who's maybe more in the middle will see them another. And it really comes down to making basically values-based judgments about the politics of certain companies, which not only does that push those companies in political directions because they feel like they need to, to, to curry favor with these these graders, but it has nothing to do with the underlying performance of, of these companies, which is what S&P is supposed to be in the business of judging, not these subjective value-based measures.
11: Right, right. And, and one of the uh, indicators in ESG is human rights. I mean, how, how do you put a score? how do you measure that?
3: But, and, and, well, to tell you the truth, they don't, because you know, one man's human rights in one country is, is you know looks looks horrible in another. And what I mean by that is the the S is not graded across all countries equally. So when you look at an S-score in a company that's got most of its operations in America, the companies that score the ESGs often treat American companies on a very different playing field than companies that operate in the third world or operate in China or Russia, for example. And so when you're looking at an ESG score, it's not even clear, regardless of the subjectivity of the human rights measurements being made uh, by the the personnel that's doing it, it's not even clear that those standards are being applied evenly across uh, companies you know across the world or even their operations in different countries. For example, a lot of electronic vehicle companies have very, very high E and S scores. Yet the cobalt that's necessary to build the batteries for these for these cars, often almost all of it is is mined in open pit mines, uh, staffed, staffed by uh, child, child slave laborers in, in the Congo. And then it's moved to China, where it's, most of it is processed. about 90 percent of the cobalt in the, in the world is is processed in China with almost no environmental controls and a ton of
11: emissions into the into the air and and that's another criticism of ESG that the E part for example has not helped the environment
3: not at all and in fact there's more and more studies showing that not only does it not help often companies run to the E score when they're actually hiding things that have gone on in in in, in their company's operations from real issues like the ones I mentioned in the Congo with environmental uh, problems that some of these companies have, have, have had. So the EO is almost there to distract from environmental issues, not to actually fo- make the companies focus on them and
11: clean them up. All right, thank you so much They Will. Thanks so much for having me.
0: More and more companies are blaming shoplifting for lower profits. In light of this, we look at the practice of releasing suspects before their trial without requiring them to pay bail, also known as no cash bail, an idea that's growing in popularity.
12: More and more retailers are calling out shoplifting for eating into their balance sheets. Shoplifting made retailers lose an estimated $87 billion in 2022. This as the practice of no cash bail grows in popularity. This is the practice of releasing suspects before their trial without requiring them to pay bail, depending on the crime they're charged with. Normally, after a suspect is arrested, they have to attend a trial. The trial happens on a later date, several weeks, or maybe even months after the arrest. Authorities want to make sure the suspect will attend the trial. So during this time, the suspect may have to wait in prison, or he or she could pay bail and go home.
5: Bail is all about the promise to show up for trial. And if you eliminate bail, you somewhat eliminate the consequences for, it, for if I, you skip out on the trial.
12: Law professor Ron Richlock says there will still be an arrest warrant out for suspects who don't show up for trial. But he says young people tend to ignore long-term consequences and focus on immediate consequences. Richlock sees a correlation between a rise in shoplifting and no-cash bail. But
5: I don't know whether there's causation. I mean, there may be other factors involved that are really driving the causal uh, the the cause of the increase in crime. However, the fact that there is a correlation means I think you got to look at it.
12: Illinois is the first state in the nation to completely eliminate all cash bail. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the policy into law in early 2021. It survived a legal challenge in July and will go into effect next month. Meanwhile, states like California, New York, New Jersey, and New Mexico either have or are considering bail policies that are less strict than other states.
3: Uh, the direction that they've gone is, I'm, I'm afraid, is, is, uh, is, is wrong, and it needs to, there needs to be a re-reform of bail reform.
12: Former law enforcement official Jason Johnson says real bail reform needs to look at a variety of factors, not just the nature of the charge. The main problem is that suspects who are released may pose a danger to society.
3: We've seen a number of defendants released that are later re-arrested and released again and are released uh, pending charges that should indicate uh, a risk to public safety if they're released pending trial.
12: Supporters of no cash bail say suspects have their lives destabilized when they can't make bail. They can't take care of their families when they're sitting in a jail cell. Proponents also claim that most people do show up for trial after their release. They say not having enough money shouldn't decide whether someone sits in a jail cell or not. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News.
0: Coming up, the state of Texas will no longer allow men, who identify as female, to compete in women's sports. But the once unheard of idea was supported by plenty of protesters. And thousands of college students are afraid to speak their minds, fearing backlash or bad grades. One lawyer tells us it's a culture issue among university campuses when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. At least six people were killed as wildfires continued to rage across Hawaii. The state declared an emergency and hundreds of families lost their homes. Special counsel Jack Smith obtained a search warrant for former President Trump's Twitter account. This was back in January, but has just come to light. And Twitter was fined for not complying right away. The Biden family received over $20 million from oligarchs in Ukraine, Russia and Kazakhstan, according to bank memos now public. To discuss the latest developments related to the Biden family's business dealings, earlier today I spoke with investigative journalist and co-host of Epic TV's Truth Over News, Jeff Carlson. Jeff Carlson, welcome to our show. Great to have you back again. Now, bank records are showing that foreigners paid more than $20 million to the Biden family and their associates. Many of these payments are not new to people, but what is the most concerning or perhaps the most of note, noteworthy to you?
10: Well, I, I would have a twofold answer to that. One, I think it's important that people look at the countries where these these dollars are originating from because we're talking about countries like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, uh, Romania, which really wasn't a primary focus of this. But it's very clear that the Bidens were operating in these sort of, I don't want to say third world, but, but countries that are known for corruption. And I think that's something that's worth sort of highlighting. One of the other things that's probably worth focusing in on, uh, it's been brought up before, but is this $3.5 million payment by Elena Botterina. And that really kind of kicked things off. That payment was made in February 2014, just two months before Joe Biden uh, was, well, it was in the month that Joe Biden became point man in Ukraine, and two months before his first trip to Ukraine, which was the same exact month that Hunter Biden joined the board of Burisma. So it's, it's just it's good that people are seeing these large stream of payments. As you said, we've known about most, if not all, of these payments. But the House committee is now aggregating this in a digestible, presentable way.
0: And the White House has stayed with its um, you know, line of reasoning that Biden didn't know anything much about uh, his family's business dealings, but there does seem to be more evidence that shows that he knew more than he let on, perhaps, about his son's business dealings around the time that he was making moves to get Ukraine's prosecutor fired. What are the most important revelations here, that in your view?
10: Well, we found some documents in uh, the transcript of Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt. He was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at the time, and he he and Victoria Nuland were intimately involved with all of Joe Biden's travels to Ukraine. Now, there was a a fairly as a dinner that took place on December fourth, or a conference call. Pardon me, a conference call that took place on December fourth, 2015 and this was recently brought to public attention, I don't know, a week or so ago, in which Hunter met with Nikola Zolchevsky, who's the owner of Burisma, and got his father, Joe Biden, on that conference call. And all the claims have been that, well, Joe Biden had no idea who he was getting on the phone with. He was getting on blindly. Well, looking through the exhibits attached to government Piatt's transcript, where he was interviewed by Congress, we can see that's patently untrue. Two days after that, not even two days after that conference call with Nikola Zolchevsky and Joe Biden, Joe Biden's staff was preparing q and uh, A. What they were doing is they were trying to pr- trying to look for questions that the media might ask and then provide crafted answers to those questions. And the biggest question, the one they were most worried about is simply this. Is Mikola Zolchevsky corrupt? And the answer to that, that they had crafted for Biden was a response where he said, oh, I don't want to comment on any one person. And then Biden immediately moves on in this crafted answer to discussing Shokin, who's about to fire. Well, right there, that tells you that the Biden camp knew exactly who Mikola Zolchevsky was. And Biden knew exactly who Mikola Zolchevsky was. As a matter of fact, as part of this whole email stream, is another commentary from Piatt where he references the DOJ package on Mikola Zolchevsky that's been sent out to Biden's entire team. Again, this is less than 2 days after that conference call where everybody is trying to claim that Joe Biden had no idea who the owner of Burisma was and the implications of that call. Joe Biden knew exactly who Zolchevsky was and you know, and by the way for those who don't know, he's considered one of the most corrupt oligarchs in Ukraine.
0: Much more to look into and hopefully understand on this topic as the uh, investigation unfolds and more comes out. Thank you so much, Jeff Carlson. Great to hear your thoughts on this.
10: Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Do men belong in women's sports? The state of Texas is saying no, though the ruling was met with plenty of opposition. NTD's Dave Martin has more.
5: Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the Save Women's Sports Act on Monday to keep school sports teams separated by the gender at birth. The ceremonial signing, which took place at the Texas Women's Hall of Fame, was attended by outspoken NCAA volleyball player Macy Petty and former NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines, among others.
1: It's pretty amazing that this law is even necessary Um, if you have eyes. And a brain, and any amount of common sense, you can easily comprehend the fact that men, on average, and this is a fact, are taller, stronger, more powerful, can jump higher than women. And I can attest to the extreme dis- discomfort in the locker room when you turn around and there's a six foot four, 22 year old male fully intact with and exposing male genitalia inches away from where you're simultaneously undressing.
5: While the event was peaceful inside, outside was a different story as scores of protesters lined the streets.
1: They were very hostile. Um, We had to stay in the event space longer than anticipated because people who were leaving were getting spit on and harassed.
5: Macy Petty, who's a senior volleyball player at Lee University in Tennessee, said that it was so hostile, eventually police had to escort them out a back entrance.
1: It was kind of this absurd experience of seeing them calling third graders transphobes um, when all they want to do is play girls sports against other girls.
5: The issue at hand is whether the current bill unfairly limits transgender athletes from playing sports, something Petty pushes back against.
1: If you identify as transgender, you're not exempt from basic rules that girls have to play on girls teams and boys have to play on boys teams. And so if we uh, get rid of those barriers between sports, then girls sports just simply won't exist anymore.
5: Petty says most of the media has tried to amplify those opposing opinions and that the majority of female athletes she comes across do not agree that a male identifying as a female automatically negates their inborn biological advantages, not to mention their presence in the locker room.
1: There is no girl that I know of that is totally fine walking into a restroom having no sex-based protections, keeping men from walking in.
5: In addition, Petty points out the case of high school volleyball player Peyton McNabb, who suffered a concussion and neck injury when a transgender athlete spiked the ball in her face last September causing partial paralysis and impaired vision.
1: That injury was completely avoidable if the state legislature would have been proactive. Um, and the truth is that this is happening at every level in every sport. Um, I met elementary school girls who are having to go through this. And, and the idea that this is a non-issue is simply not true.
5: Now, currently 20 states have passed similar forms of legislation like Texas', which goes into effect next month. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News.
0: There are thousands of students across the country afraid to voice their values and beliefs. A lawyer tells NTD's David Lamb that it's a culture issue when people are silenced. Here's the conversation with attorney Daniel Ordner.
13: Daniel Ordner, attorney with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, thank you for joining me again. I know we just recently spoke about a case that you're working on regarding free speech at a, a Clovis Community College. So, can you tell me, as an attorney, what have you been seeing in the overall landscape when it comes to students' free speech?
6: Yeah, I think you know, students right now uh, are often very afraid of speaking out. The surveys that FIRE does every year, the organization I work for, national surveys of thousands of students across the country, show that large majorities, um, you know, last year's survey had 63% of students worried that if they said what they believed, it would hurt their reputation. You know, they can't talk about important topics like, like abortion, like LGBT rights, like any of these highly controversial topics. They just can't talk about them at all, especially if they disagree with the consensus on these topics. They are afraid that they'll, you know, get worse grades, that they will be uh, have a significant backlash, that they'll be silenced. Um, and, and unfortunately, on the other hand, you have a lot of students feeling free to shut down speakers, to cancel uh, those that are coming on campus to speak out.
13: How have we gone to this point where the culture has shifted, where there is controversy and censorship uh, regarding people's differing opinions, especially within colleges, it's meant to have broad discussion and seminars.
6: Yeah, I mean, we've kind of forgotten what universities are meant to be, which is a a place where free speech and free ideas are expressed and debated. Uh, they're really um, meant to be marketplaces of ideas, uh, laboratories for democracy, places where uh, students, professors, um, and others can, can debate important ideas and, and uh, you know, come come to their own conclusion. Whether you're le- left, we- left, right, center, doesn't matter where you stand on the political spectrum. Uh, free speech is a precious right that uh, needs to be protected for everyone, including those we disagree with. Public universities you know, are uh, state actors. They are bound by the First Amendment to the Constitution, and so they cannot uh, put other values above free speech
13: thank you so much Daniel Ordner attorney with the foundation for individual rights and expression it's great to have you back on our show yeah thanks thanks
6: for having me
0: coming up two contrasting films light up the festival of cinema in New York City the unseen crisis shares stories of the vaccine injured The other focuses on ways to reach unvaccinated communities That and more after the break. (music) Two opposing documentaries back to back at a New York City film festival. One about COVID-19 vaccine injuries. The other, exploring ways to vaccinate in hard-to-reach communities. Did the producers learn anything from each other? NTD's Jason Perry reports.
7: Hello, everyone. I'm here at the Festival of Cinema NYC. One of the films playing tonight is an epic original documentary. It's called The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. It tells the stories of people who were injured after taking the COVID-19 vaccine. The film's director, writer, and producer Cindy Drewcare shared her thoughts on the film that brought to light the thousands of people who were injured after taking the COVID vaccine. It's
6: about survivors, you know, people who by no fault of their own were the victim of something, you know, they suffered a horrible... Impact from the vaccine
7: and one of the vaccine injured people who participated in the film was registered nurse Angela Wolbrecht who once advocated for the COVID-19 vaccine even after having an adverse reaction to the shot.
14: It showed, you know, people like me who actually got great care, you know, I'm fully recovered and, you know, in
7: comparison to the people that got no care, you know. They're they're still in wheelchairs. Now the founder and executive director of the film festival, Jason Simba, decided to play this documentary right after another vaccine documentary that examined ways for hard to reach communities to get vaccinated. And I feel like putting these together not only will will create conversation, but some I feel like somewhere in the middle is where the truth lies. So you got that view, this view but then the truth lies somewhere in that, in that middle between these films. And, and that's the reason, really the primary reason why I put these together, to start the conversation and have people thinking. After the showing of both documentaries, there was a panel discussion with the filmmakers of both films. And the producer of the documentary, Bring It to the People, explained some of the reasoning behind his film. Now my
6: background is in um, pandemic planning, um, as I mentioned earlier. And um, since the onset of the uh, pandemic, and as a director of public health at St. John's University, um, you know I felt that it's my responsibility to do something to sort of um, help communities that were suffering.
7: And Drew Kerr was asked if she ever thought about why the vaccine had a negative effect on some people but not others.
6: Dr. Pierre Corey, who has treated, you know, he's seen the hundreds, thousands
5: of, of vaccine injured, uh, he said that. Um, the number one thing
6: is actually the batch. There seems to be some batches produced a lot more negative results than others.
7: Harlem Gunness shared his thoughts after watching The Unseen Crisis, which was played right after his documentary. And you know, I think that the take home message and we were
6: talking about this was that for anyone, uh, whether you're pro vaccine or anti-vaccine, is to really be informed and to really sort of try to access the most appropriate um, Um, uh, resources and to question it, right? Um, I think that that was a a major takeaway from both movies.
7: You can visit unseencrisis.com to watch the full documentary for just four dollars. That'll also give you four weeks of unlimited access to Epic TV. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York.
0: And a press release about the Unseen Crisis was rejected by two Newswire services. One gave no reason. The other said the documentary had unverifiable medical claims. We break that down with Angela Wolbrecht, who's featured in the film. She's a nurse who faced multiple serious medical issues following her COVID vaccine. And I spoke with her earlier today. Angela Wolbrecht, thank you so much for joining us. I wanna start by looking at the fact that two Newswire services recently rejected, uh, you know, applications to publish press releases about this film. How do you feel about that? What, what do you think it's about?
14: Well, it's really disappointing for me because, you know, this film is not political. It's not an anti-vax film. It's really true stories about the vaccine injured. Everything in the documentary is verified. Um, it's all true and accurate and correct. These are real stories, these are real people. Um, all of the doctors who took care of these vaccine injured verify that it is from the vaccine injury. Many of us, it happened immediately, especially when it comes to a medication that was recommended to us. We all did our part. We wanted to do what was right. We were told it was safe and effective, and we trusted, and so, in medicine if something goes wrong the best way to handle it is to hold their hand you know things don't always go right and what you do is you you help take care of the people and help them through the process and this documentary is about the lives of people that that did not happen to um, and that's the case for the majority of the vaccine injured they are not helped and so i think the best way to Get through this process is to listen to these people. They need they need to be heard. They need to be helped. Your own uh, relationship with the healthcare system has been transformed
0: through this experience. Could you tell me more about that?
14: Yeah. So I was um, completely pro-vax. I worked in a big hospital. I ran several units in a hospital as a charge nurse. Um, I believed in the system. And even after I got injured, I, I still believed in the system. I thought I was maybe one of those rare ones um, that got injured, but I still believed that they could help people um, and that we needed to get through the pandemic. And it was a serious you know, virus that was going around. Um, so I was pretty uh, disturbed when I reached out to the very own people that I trusted um, and they basically gaslit us. You know, they, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH—they—they they turn their backs on us, and as I said, that's just not what you do in medicine. By not a, by not dealing with this situation immediately, it's just going to get worse and worse because these are not, uh, you know, insignificant injuries. These are people whose lives have been completely destroyed. Some of them have lost their homes. You know, the worst situation is the loss of a child or a loved one. Um, but many of my close friends who are vaccine-injured are completely disabled. And these were young, healthy, healthy people. And they are now on a couch at home, you know, some of them wanting to die because they can't endure the pain. Some of them have died. And it's just really horrifying. I personally was quite moved
0: when you know, the film showed you reading your letter that you'd written to your daughter when you had lost all hope. Yeah you know, could you tell, take us back to that moment when you you weren't sure if you were going to make it?
14: Yes, it was re- it, it was really terrifying. You know, um, my reaction was immediate. Um, I was taken to the hospital, you know, after I had the vaccine. I was really unstable. And for those first, you know, couple of months, I was I, I had five 911 calls. Um, they were all cardiac related, respiratory related. I couldn't breathe. My heart was beating out of my chest. I really you know, it was day by day. I didn't think that I would make it. And the only energy that I had when I did have the energy was to write letters to my daughter. And, um, you know, Cindy created such a safe place for us to share. I, I really never intended to ever read that or share it with anybody because it was so heartbreaking for me. The hardest thing, you know, about getting injured and potentially dying is leaving a beautiful child. You know, I wanted to be there for her for a long time. So um, Cindy's team made us feel so comfortable that we could share our most vulnerable, you know, scariest moments. And I think she did a beautiful job capturing all of those moments. Um, But it was it was terrifying. And you know, I'm so grateful for all of the doctors, you know, that's one of the things is like if you actually take care of these people they can, they have the potential to get better. And I was really sick, but I'm 100% back to normal now. I am, you know, I'm a nurse still taking care of people. I'm dancing, I'm a mother, I'm traveling, I'm here, you know, just flew out from California. And as you mentioned, some people have
0: unfortunately passed away or they're still struggling with their illnesses post vaccine. What would you say is the difference or the takeaway here for people to know?
14: Early care. Early care as well as studying and researching what is it with us that caused this to happen. I mean, they need to look at why some people get the vaccine and appear to be doing just fine and have no reactions, where other young, healthy people just like them, you know, it completely changes their life. Nobody wants to see people injured and hurt. But you have to deal with the reality of of what's going on and um, I think the documentary captured that so beautifully. Thank you so much, Angela Wilbrecht. Great You're to speak. You're so to you. welcome. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. If you have any news
0: tips or feedback for our show, remember that you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Acox. Good night.